0: Hosting provided by Host Tornado. They offer website hosting packages, dedicated servers, and VPS solutions. HostT.net. Programming Throwdown, Episode 40, Unity. Take it away, Patrick.
1: So I'll start off with a little bit of a rant pre versus right. post increment. Okay. So- I got into a discussion with people at work and for a long time I have always just done uh, so the, the biggest example is in a for loop in the final variable change parameter the normal one you do is an increment uh, plus plus and so I do uh, I plus plus or whatever so for I yep. equals zero I is less than 10 I plus plus that's I just always done it this way um, and if I put a an increment on a line by itself, I do the plus plus like it just reads more naturally to me like this. variable,
0: You're taking the variable and you're incrementing it. You're not incrementing something that you're going to read later.
1: So, uh, and then of course, if you put it in line with other stuff, I actually tend to try to avoid that. Um, like in a statement because I actually find like, I will do it occasionally, but I find it to be a more cognitive load. So I'd rather, uh, either have it be a post increment so that it just happens at the end. And it's like, I put it on another line or do it on a separate line all by itself. And so someone pointed out to me, one of my code reviews that I was doing post increment and that the quote unquote standard we were using was pre-increment. And I said, nah, that's not true. And so then I went through all of, like I, you know, wrote a, a grep command to grep through all of our code. And sure enough, uh, Except for just a couple small other cases from other people. Everyone on the team had been doing pre increment except me. And all the <laughs> code checked in that was post increment, every single one of them except those like two other cases was me. And it was like, ah. Oh. It was like <laughs> one of those sinking moments where like I was hoping to be triumphant because like, ah, oh, see, everyone's using post increment sometimes. There's no standard. And then it was like, yeah, no, I'm wrong. That's and I the don't know where it came when,
0: from. It, the worst is when like, yeah like it's it's too late at that point you know like when the project starts you can try to fight for what you believe in but if if, if it's been going on for six months and you've been doing it one way and everyone on the team's been doing it another way then you just have to bite the bullet man that's so terrible. i
1: did so i i swallowed my pride and uh submitted a, a change to su- convert all of my post increments to pre-increments uh, yeah. but i still i still catch myself writing the post increments and then having to f- fix it later <laughs>
0: yeah I, I I feel the same way. I mean, like compilers now are so smart that the difference is kind of negligible, if anything. like I don't even know if the instructions end up different at the end you know <laughs> because like the, if if one really was better than the other, the compiler I mean you know there's no way to there's no way you that I know of actually, I guess maybe if you used a comma, right? Like, if you had I++, comma, and then, like, some more logic here versus the, like, that's the only way where putting the prefix versus postfix, you know, and this, this other logic also had an I, like, print I. That's yeah. the only way where you could end up with different behavior by yeah. swapping them. And nobody does that, right?
1: No, I, I would not allow that in a code review.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. So anyways,
1: Um, I just have this bad, like, I guess I looked it up at one point. I think they said it was like the original, the C book or whatever. Carnegie, Richard, Richard, something. Anyways, uh, Kerningham. Oh, why do I always forget the name?
0: Wait, does Uh, someone in your code review quoted a, a C book?
1: No, the C programming book by Kerningham. Oh man. I always, always mess up the name. Uh, anyways. And in that one, I think is where Brian Kerningham and Dennis Ritchie. I was combining the two. Okay. Brain fart. Um, (laughs) the, in this book, they do the post increment like I did. And so like, I guess maybe it's being from the States and going to college here in the United States, like the de facto way is writing it this way. Um, but I guess people from other places don't, they use the pre-increment. Um, and so that's just what they're used to. Uh, and then it's defensible to them, I guess. I don't know. Gotcha. But everyone I've ever seen until that day had always done like, and then like everyone on the team is doing pre increment. I'm just like, what? How am I the <laughs> only one out here? I've never like been fussed at for this before. You should
0: uh, so you should and you should just have a comment. You should write a regex that puts a comment instead sort of every for loop. And it just says like this The only pre increment <sighs> symbol should be Murica. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know I don't know so I'm just curious okay but you're also post increment so I'm trying to figure out where the pre versus post came from
0: yeah so um, there was somebody on my team like so in a um, for
1: loop it doesn't matter like I, I don't think there's anyone can really make an argue that it matters from a compiler perspective um, so there right. has to be just like a legacy or like a you so know there was on my someone last wrote. team
0: who is really into the pre increment and that person was from like uh, Suriname, like former or post British Guyana, like South uh, South America. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it is like a American verse. Like maybe people like Europeans and South Americans learned pre-increment, and we learned post-increment somehow. I don't really know how that happened.
1: I have yeah, I have no
0: idea. But yeah, all right. That's,
1: anyways, uh, that's my that's my rant. Uh, so, on to an interesting topic. I was talking to someone about cooking. And so, I actually enjoy cooking. Um, and I uh, don't do it as much as I should. I'm a pretty busy at work. But um, I do enjoy when I do it uh, and baking. I've been baking bread recently. I have like a, oh, not nice. a New Year's resolution, but like kind of a goal this year. to.
0: It doesn't last long, right? My parents used to bake bread and it was like a brick two days later. You, you um, pretty much have to eat it that day.
1: No, well, I don't end up having that much left over after the first day, but I, oh, okay. I don't make a lot of it, and it does tend to last two or three days at least. And then I typically really? either am tired of it or get rid of it. Oh, um, okay. But no, you must it's, be it's, doing it's, a better job. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I don't know that. Maybe I. No, I don't know. Um, but then I was like talking to people like, oh no, I can't cook, whatever. And I'm like, well, you get instructions. It's like reading a program, and you just like follow the thing that recipe has.
0: Yeah, you and really I find can't out, go wrong.
1: Well, but I find out like it's actually very rare for people to follow recipes. Now, I, think,
0: I think part of it is you have to fail. Like for example, the first time I learned how to cook, I was just completely on my own, and, um, you know, uh, they told me to like put the rice in. I just was making rice, like the simplest thing. They told me put the rice in, put the water in, and then boil it or like simmer it for uh, I don't remember how many minutes, right? But I left it on hot, and I guess you know when you're supposed to simmer, you're supposed to put it on low, and didn't it didn't say simmer on low? It just said simmer, so I don't know what that meant. And uh, I left. I came back, and like even like the pan itself was ruined. Like the rice (laughs) had just kind of like destroyed the enamel, like the Teflon on the pan. Uh. But the point is, like you know, you uh, either you get formal training or you just like make mistakes like that and destroy things. And I think like what you're talking about is actually a metaphor for. A lot of things like there are people who are just afraid to like take kind of chances and like the ambiguity it i don't i don't know if it's like afraid probably is like very Is too strong language but it's more just like oh this is really ambiguous this is really hard i'm not going to try this versus i'm going to like fill in all the ambiguity you know by chance and then see what happens right
1: yeah and and i guess it's somewhat like people who so you can make mistakes like what you're saying or like where there's ambiguity in the instructions but i mean all sorts of people who it's like well i've never made this dish before but uh you know i feel like i can do better than what this person's saying like oh they call for like a cup of milk Uh, i don't have any milk Uh, i'll just use a cup of butter instead it'll be the same (laughs) okay that's that's kind (laughs) of egregious but like i people i talk to do this kind of stuff like oh i'll substitute you know it says like you know, x amount of flour. Well, the only flour I have is like almond flour, so like it'll be okay. Um, it, it, yeah, and some of it's like not knowing, but it's just people don't like. W- the more I don't know, the more I try to like follow some guideposts, like the instructions or a YouTube video or like something. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. pretend like I know better, but yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I think yeah, you have to follow it closely, and then you'll still probably make mistakes. But then over time, like I've gotten to the point now where. Um, like for example this morning I was making scrambled eggs and I just kind of like put in enough milk when I was mixing the eggs so that it just kind of looked right and I was like I've made so many scrambled eggs at this point I don't have to really measure anything but
1: the first time you were going to make scrambled eggs like
0: so the first time it's like I followed the recipe like to a T yeah exactly I bought like cream I never even use cream no one drinks coffee in this house but like I bought cream because it said to use cream instead of milk you know
1: yeah. Okay. So that's the same way I do it. Yeah. Okay. But apparently yeah. this is uncommon, and then people yeah, Lindsay, like don't understand Lindsay why they me fail. Such a
0: hard time for that, like, uh Especially if I'm trying a brand new recipe, and I have to do absolutely everything absolutely perfect. Oh, there yes. was one that had yes. a rub. So it was it was a burger recipe, and this was a rub, and I was following the recipe kind of line by line, um, and then the thing is, it didn't tell me how much of the rub to put on the meat. Like, it didn't say. It didn't have like a. Like how much rub yeah. I made, how many pounds of meat I could season with it. And I was just like, Oh no, like what if I over season it? And that's where you have to just bite the bullet and just hope you, you get it right, you know.
1: Yeah.
0: Cooking is uh, actually okay. so freaking fun.
1: I like cooking, yeah. So yeah. anyways, cooking. Programming. Cooking. All right. On to on to actual technical topics. <laughs> <for the> <laughs> yeah. Uh well, I guess we didn't do the ordering very well for the show, so I'm up first again. So you just hear a lot yeah, of me no so far. Um This is an article about why at Stack Exchange they still believe in private offices. So a lot of um, press has come out around several big companies talking about open offices where uh, there aren't the many, many people kind of essentially sit in a large room. And there may be like desk divisions in rows or pods, but essentially everyone's in an open room where you can just hear people shouting. This used to be called a bullpen. Um, yeah,
0: that's what I know it by.
1: But now people call it more politely "open office plan," and it's oh, supposed okay. to be like a perk, and it's deliberate, and it's great, uh, and that's like the new wave. But increasingly, people are like, "Wait a second, this doesn't make sense for anyone except for like cost savings." Um, they try to so the the pros from the people who say open offices are good is that uh, you get dynamic interaction between people, right? So you're all at work. The purpose of being at work instead of just working at home is to be around other people, and so mm-hmm. when you have an open office plan, you're hearing conversations that you might not have otherwise. You interact with them, uh, and this is you know leads to big productivity boosts uh, in the long term. But the cons are you hear everyone, and people are loud or talking about stuff you're not interested. Uh, you can't. It's very hard to focus because anyone can just come up to you and start talking to you, even if they're in the middle of something important. Um, and so, you know, these are kind of cons. And, uh, th- you know, this article, Stack Exchange Company, is saying why they they believe in private offices. You can read this article. And from my standpoint, the I, I think there's somewhere in between. So some places have offices with only one to two people in them. Um, that, to me, is a little lonely and, like, maybe not good. So the best mm-hmm. I've had is I was in a room with, like, four to five people who were in a very, uh, s- like, the team was a very specific part of a sub team. And so these people, I was people I worked together with a lot. And so I needed to have a lot of interaction with, and we had a door we could close. So if we needed to have like a meeting, we didn't go somewhere, we just closed our door and had our meeting. Um, Also like the chance of me interrupting someone who doesn't care about what I'm talking about is really low because like I become, these are people I work with day in and day out. So we all understand each other and we're more comfortable saying like, hey, like not right now, like I'm busy or whatever. and so I found like that four to six people in a quote unquote office closed space, that was like for me, uh, some of the best work environment I've had.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was just, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, I had, I've had i worked in places that had the huge bullpen. Actually, we worked together at uh, mm-hmm. in, in a, like a bullpen environment. And actually in that case, it worked where we worked because it was very quiet. It was just naturally very quiet. Yes. So that was an anomaly. I don't think that's normal. No, but uh, um, but generally, yeah, I've worked in bullpen environments where, you know, it's just there's like there's like an air hockey table behind you, and there's like people playing ping pong next to you, and and you know somebody else, there's always someone coming back or going to something, and it's just very distracting. It's like hard to focus. Um, but then uh, you know, then the office environment it can feel lonely. I mean, the situation I have now, there's two of us in an office. And then there's just, like, rows of offices. And so, um, like, most people just have their doors open. So it's kind of like having the bullpen kind of style where you can just yell at somebody, like, through your doors and it kind of works. It like it looks like from this article that they – the walls are made of glass. That probably makes a tremendous difference, you know, because, I mean, that way it's like you don't have the noise, but you can just easily just get somebody's attention, too. Um but uh, but yeah, this is this is very hard. There's no clear answer. They all seem to have their ups and downs. Which one's your favorite? Yeah, you no, your like favorite I said, was I think, the think office
1: like, yeah, having an people? office with like four four to six people. How do you more than six, six just gets in too many. It's a it's not a normal. I mean, it's a bit. It's just I mean a room, right? Like office. Oh, oh I see. So like I can gotcha. have up to six people. I think when you get under, if you just have like one or two, I think there is a. You, like you're saying for now people might have their door open, but if the the it's very hard to control, right suddenly the culture could just become everyone has their door closed, and then yeah, right. you lose all of that right um, versus having your immediate team, which you it's really hard to work with a team of more than you know six people like it's not hard, but like you begin to end up with naturally some sort of sub teaming happening, yeah, um, right. And so I think to me, that, that is the thing. When you have the big open spaces, people, it's like, oh, put on headphones. It's like, well, A, you can still come up and talk to me. And B, if I have headphones all the time, why am I not just at home? <laughs> like,
0: Yeah, exactly. I can't hear yeah, these I mean, dynamic conversations. The thing about the office is like, when you really need to focus, you can close the door. And that's just kind of like the universal sign for like, I'm in the zone right now, you know? And like, provided that like sort of you manage your door, like, you know, responsibly, then that's <laughs> like that that's like a tremendous benefit. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: yeah. So the next article is React Native. This is so freaking exciting because I've been wanting something like this forever. Um so I'll tell you a little bit of history. So uh so well first React Native is um the React JS kind of paradigm, but applied to native. And so I'll tell you what that means. So um You know, we we were talking before the show a little bit about kind of, you know, web and just how, like, HTML and JavaScript and CSS, these things have come such a long way, and there's just so much infrastructure around them. And the browsers themselves are so complex and so efficient that laying out, you know, laying out uh, divs and, and, you know, getting good spacing and things like that, putting images in the right space, loading pages fast, etc., right? It's just such a beautiful piece of infrastructure. And that making things for the web, especially, you know, things where you just want to display a lot of data or (coughs) things where you want some kind of interactive form or something like that, it's just just nothing can really beat it. Um, On top of that, if you make a website, you make it for everybody, right? I mean, with a little bit of good CSS, you can make a website and it can work on mobile and on desktop and... And uh, it just kind of magically works everywhere. And with respect to desktop, it actually, like, looks and feels good on everyone's desktop. Mobile, not so much, right? So, you know, originally Facebook tried to do the whole HTML5 app, where they basically just took the Facebook website and, you know, just from a tech standpoint, like, crushed it into an app where, you know, when you started Facebook, it looked like you are going to some native app, but it's really just taking you to a web page where you know the address bar and other things are hidden. So it just it feels like it feels like an app, but you're really sh- you're on the internet. Um, and the thing about it is, on native, you know, and we could just argue this to death, like like why, is, like whether this is a good idea or whether this can change if it's like fundamental or not. But the reality is the web experience on native sucks right like the android browser the the chrome on ios and on android and webkit all of it is kind of terrible um and that's why facebook bailed on the you know web the web app app and uh i wouldn't say it's
1: terrible it's terrible if you're trying to use like what we now accommodate as like an app like web app apps on those browsers are terrible (laughs)
0: Let me think about that. Did
1: I make that too many apps in a row? So So like Gmail, like Gmail, like I don't, my Gmail app, it is a website, but it's really an app. Um, And to use that on those browsers is not a good experience for me. But like going to a blog, for instance, like uh, I think the normal ones are fine. I actually don't like the apps that are like forum readers. They just don't work well for me.
0: Yeah, that's Um, a good point. So maybe what it is, I think actually to be more specific... I think that web app apps are in the uncanny valley where, like, you know, they respond pretty well and everything, but when you, you know, say flip a switch, and it's really just some kind of, like, JavaScript mock of what a native switch would look and feel like, it behaves just slightly different, and and it's different enough that it makes you hate yourself. It's in that uncanny valley. It's almost like if if you get it like a completely different experience on the web, you're much better off than trying to make it feel like a native app, you know? Um, anyways, you don't have to do any of that nonsense because there's React Native now. It just came out. And so the idea is, um, similar to how React JS is this JavaScript library that lets you build a bunch of widgets programmatically and as the name suggests, all the widgets are reactive. So, <clears throat> if I wanted to make, say, a chat program, all I do is I say, "Hey, here's a chat widget. It's um, backed by this array. Hey, here's a, um, you know, here's a button widget. It's, you know, when you press it, this function gets called. And then whenever you, know, you press the button, the function gets called. That's pretty clear. But also, whenever that array changes, it." re-renders your chat window so you don't have to say something like you know listen for new chat messages when you get them you know clear out the window and redraw it like you just say hey look this window is this chat array and it's just magically done um so react native is the same thing for native and it's cross platform so what these guys have done is they've defined like a you know, like a button in this React um, JavaScript language, and they've kept it very similar to the web. There are some differences of things which just didn't translate well, but some things like buttons are almost exactly the same. So you define some button in React.js, and then on Android, you get a native Android button, then on iOS, you get, you know, the iOS button. Um, and if you define some a widget like map, for example, you'll get the, you know, native, apple maps on ios and you'll get the native google maps on android so they they you know try their best to like you know do the right thing there um and it's all reactive like i said so you know you could have a map widget and you can say okay i have this location variable and whenever this location variable changes recenter my map and it just magically works so it's pretty cool um i don't know if it's actually i don't think it's out yet so just read some articles on it. Yeah, you know, they have Facebook put out some it's videos. Coming. And uh, be ready. Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> so our next article is Windows 10. Uh, and the exciting thing everyone wants to talk about about Windows 10 is the fact that Microsoft is moving to a free for consumers asterisk, all sorts of caveats, potentially people, <laughs> whether that's true or not. But the long story short is that it appears that Windows instead of or Microsoft, sorry, instead of um, trying to gain a lot of money from selling new versions of Windows and, and waiting for people to upgrade, to try to make sure everyone's upgraded on to something vaguely resembling the latest version, uh, as opposed to tons of people still running Windows XP, um, mm-hmm. is to offer Windows 10 free as an upgrade to people who have, I think, at least Windows 7, if I read correctly. That's right. Um, So so if you have Windows 7 or later license, you can upgrade to Windows 10 for free. And then it looks like they're moving towards uh, updating again for free. So instead of uh, having very long-lasting OSs, it sounds like their intention is to move to kind of a more frequent cycle. Um, Right. And then uh, that way that they can, again, push features and keep people on something Fresh, akin to what you get on android or ios right instead of your computer just coming with an os and just sticking with it um if you osx does something similar right like they update yeah uh, what is it about once a year or once every other year um, um
0: it depends it more fre- much
1: more frequent than windows um from right. microsoft and so everyone's kind of assumed to be running something that is pretty new
0: yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, there's a chicken and egg problem that this solves, right, which is um, developers are sitting on Windows XP or Windows 7. Um, they're making apps using that. So, of course, they're really interested in backwards compatibility. And then you, know, you end up with no one having any reason to update. Um, like, you know, if, as soon as a program, like if, if tomorrow Steam mm. told me, hey, you know, to run Steam, you need to have Windows 10. Well, then, shoot, I'm going on Windows 10. I mean, I have no choice. And so um, that's sort of, I think, the environment that they want to cultivate one where, you know, there's no reason for people who already have Windows to not be on the latest. And then once, you know, say 90% of people running Windows are running 10, then developers can start saying, well, why am I going to support seven? if you could just go to 10 for free and oh, everyone's done it. So then, you know, you'll see developers dropping support for older versions of Windows. Um, and that will, you know, force more people to upgrade and so on and so forth. So, And I think it's, it's you know, the other strategic thing for Microsoft is they want to start getting into this cloud business. Like they want to compete with Dropbox on, you know, cloud sharing and things like that. And so, you know, f- Let's say something else comes out that's like Dropbox, but different. Like it's, you know, it, it's a service. Um, you know, it's like some kind of desktop app you download. Um, but instead of share synchronizing your files, it synchronizes your contacts. Okay, so it's 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 contact box. <laughs> <laughs> then like, uh, you know, if Windows, if Microsoft sees, oh, that's a pretty cool desktop app, they could bake it into Windows 11 they can come up with Microsoft contact box and it's part of the OS and they can kind of run these people out, which is something they haven't been able to do in the past. So strategically, it's a really good decision. Um, It probably should have been made like 20 years ago, but uh, I guess we'll let it slide. (laughs) Um, So then the next article, this is pretty cool. I never knew this existed, but um, so if you're writing JavaScript right now on the web, you're writing um, ECMAScript 5. And so the deal is, you know, ECMAScript is like the formal um, definition of JavaScript, like the formal name of that language. Um, and most people are writing 5. Um, now they're coming out with, you know, the JavaScript version 6. Actually, it's already out. Um, but the problem is, you know, again, you have this adoption problem. Like if I write it in 6, you know, 90% of the people aren't going to be able to use my website, um, and so that's a problem. So they wrote this this transpiler. So basically, you can write your code as if everyone's running the latest bleeding edge, you know, Chrome or Firefox. Um, and for people who aren't, they can run the JavaScript 5 version of your code. And, and maybe it's a little slower or something like that, but functionally it should do exactly the same thing and uh, it allows you to sort of make that transition and start writing javascript 6 now it's pretty cool very nice
1: time for book of the show book 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 book, 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 book of, of
0: the, show. the show my book of the show it's kind of uh, a little different than usual but i actually found out that there's this magazine called game developer magazine and uh they stopped printing issues, I think, like, five, six years ago. Um, and you, But you can actually get all of the issues for free. So it's pretty cool. I mean, you can just flip through um, literally any issue of this magazine. You can just download it and flip through a PDF of it. So um, if you're into game development or you're uh, um, into sort of the history of, of game development, things like that, this is a pretty cool uh, resource to check out.
1: I think I remember reading that magazine in college. I think there was like issues around the computer science building somewhere. Uh, nice. Everybody wanted to be a game developer in college. so.
0: Yeah, that's true. If you ask around software engineers, like almost everybody says, oh, I got into it because I wanted to make games.
1: Well, I should have uh, specified, yeah, in a computer science area. I don't think if you walked <laughs> to random pieces of campus, it probably would have said that.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I didn't go How to did those go places. To I would have just true. gotten beat up. So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Because um, sports uh, sports, um, sports, injury majors
1: just crush us. Uh, that's a topic for another time. Um, my book of the week is, or book of the show, is Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson, which I've recommended, I think, at least one other book of his before. Uh, and this is a book I just finished. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, oh yeah. I guess it's considered fantasy. Um, okay. But it was very suspenseful. It's a little long, but uh, I, not the longest way ever, But it it's it just for whatever reason, it's like very action packed, on my edge of my seat, and I was like really enjoying it. Um, Is it
0: part of like a series, or could you just so, read yep. this one?
1: So uh, you could just read this one, but when you get to the end, you will want to read the next one. Uh, and I oh, think,
0: it's the beginning of a series. Yeah, I
1: think there's three in this series, and then I think maybe a prequel or something that they wrote later. Um, But this Uh, is the first one I read. Uh, And I try not to read too much, even like the titles of like other books in a series, because I'm always afraid it's going to be like a spoiler.
0: Um, Yeah, yeah, right.
1: And I don't want to say too much about this book either. Um, But it involves, uh, there's some stuff about like, a little bit of like alchemy almost in it, um, which is kind of cool. Okay. So, but I I very, very much enjoyed this book. And I just started on the second one. Like I went to start listening to another book. uh, So I listened to a lot of my books on audio during my commute. And so um, I went to start, like, you know, reading, listening to another book. And uh, I was just like, no, I want to go find out what happened. so <laughs> I, like, started this book, the second one of this series. So it was that good.
0: Cool. Do you use the, uh, what is it called, <clears throat> um, the Books on Tape Audible?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I want to look into that. I don't, uh, I've never used it before, but now I started taking the shuttle um just because it's uh it's just kind of more convenient but it does make the commute longer because that's the stop. Uh, so yeah i'm looking for something to do yeah um
1: i totally do that so the library also is a good source of audio books um even online so they have books on cd um which of course you can do uh or Mm -hmm. they have a lot of them there's i think it's called overdrive which is like essentially audible but like for the library um, oh, okay and so you should check that out i read a lot of specifically like science fiction and so they tend not to have the books i'm really interested in um but gotcha. i do browse every so often and there are good books on there so
0: cool cool check it out um time for right.
1: our of the show
0: it's a tool of the show my tool of the show i can't believe that i haven't done this one already but i flipped through the archives and it's the first time but this is probably my favorite tool ever, ever. Um, it's meld ever it is meld you say this every It is show. amazing so basically just take whatever you know about diff tools and throw it out the window because meld just just makes it so much easier um it's so meld is a diff tool so you know it compares um two or three files and it will show you the differences either between the two or among the three files. Um, so you can, you can hook meld into git. Um, so if you ever do like a git diff or a git merge, meld will just automatically come up and take over. Um, it's pretty awesome. If you do like a git merge and there's a merge conflict, meld will pop up and the left panel will show what you have. The right panel will show what is on the remote and the middle will show what Git tried to do automatically, um, which, you know, will be like somewhere in the middle, right? Um, But it's pretty cool. You can also, if you are in a Git repository, you can just type meld, and it will automatically diff what you have, like your working copy against the repository, like against head. So if you want to do like, instead of doing like a Git diff, um, you get like a graphical git diff kind of for free. Um, <coughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, it has a couple of issues on Mac. Um, it's kind of, there's some, there's some problems there. I'm um, actually, I want to put together like a Meld Mac package. The issue is right now, Meld uses the X Quartz, which is like Mac's X11 kind of rendering interface. Um, but it can use regular quartz, it just has to be recompiled. So um I'll probably put together like a package for that or something. Maybe try and like put it in homebrew or something like that. But even the X eleven is like pretty decent. Um, and if you're on, you know, OS ten or I'm sorry, if you're on uh, Linux or uh, Windows it just it just magically works. So Yep. I uh, use Melt, this is what I out. use. I use MELD. Yeah. Oh you use MELD? Yeah. Nice.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. good stuff. Although, I, I think when I do git diff, it just gives me the, uh, I have to give diff tool, will bring it up. Um,
0: yeah, you um, have to do, actually, you have to do diff tool, and then you have to pass dash dash DIR dash diff. Oh, so,
1: I, don't, I don't type that.
0: Oh, yeah, so the way, you know, to diff tool, it, it assumes that whatever tool you're using can only diff, one file at a time, oh. so it keeps popping yeah, up. Yeah, it, it just keeps hey, saying yes or meld, no. Yeah, yeah. So if you do dash dash deer diff, then it knows to take the entire diff and put it in mail.
1: Oh, I'm gonna try that tomorrow because I use this tool. Yeah, for me,
0: so yeah, yeah. And if you do like uh, if you configure your Git uh, in a certain way, then you don't even have to do the diff tool or the deer diff. When I mean, you do a regular well. diff. It's just it just magically works.
1: Nice. These are valuable yeah. tips, Jason. <laughs> and you just give them away for free.
0: For free? Can you believe it? Actually, I, it costs money to give them away. Like, we, we pay for the bandwidth so other people can learn this for free.
1: My tool of the show is not nearly as useful, but it is guaranteed to... Uh, no, it is not guaranteed to anything. It will waste time. <laughs> so this is an okay. iOS game. I think they said they're coming out for Android as well. Uh, I should be more diligent about looking that up. I do most of my quote-unquote video gaming uh, on my iPad uh, in the evenings. And so um, this is called Space Marshals. Uh, and this okay. is a game for the iPad uh, and I think iPhone too, but I know definitely on the iPad. That's where I play it on iOS. And it is a tactical shooter. So um, a dual stick tactical shooter. And rather than running around and trying to shoot lots of things. Um, you're, it's kind of almost like metal gear solid in like that you're trying to crouch and hide. And then you're trying to avoid the attention of the guards and you can do things like throw rocks that make noises. And then the, the guards will walk over to see what's happening and then you can ambush them from behind. Um, but if you shoot ah. them with a loud gun, it'll alert the other guards. So then you may want to choose like a quiet gun that does less damage, but is quiet. Um, and so there's all sorts of interesting trades and mechanisms for encouraging you to replay the level and do better and you get a score. And based on how good you do, you get rewards. Um, and so they just announced, and I'm very excited, that they're coming out. The first one is only, I think, uh, 10 or 14 levels. It doesn't take terribly long. Um, and it was kind of like, oh, this is a little bit short. But they're going to come out with the second set of levels uh, as a free update to the game. And so oh, nice. uh, it'll get more gameplay, which will be awesome.
0: So is these one is this one of these like pay to win kind of games no. or is it like a, I,
1: I think you just it, you buy the game and then I don't like I don't think you can pay anything more.
0: Oh great, that's perfect.
1: Yeah, I'm not a big in app purchase person.
0: No, I've gotten to the point now where if there's in app purchases, yeah. I'll almost never install it. Like I'm, I'm it has pretty pretty much to the be something yeah. where it's like content, you know, like buy another level or something. Then I'll think about it but if i go to the in-app purchases and it's like any kind of bs currency like if there's if, if it's like there are rubies, 500 500 rubies sticks, yeah i'm like forget it i'm out <laughs> uh,
1: but i really enjoyed this game this game's a lot of fun uh, and it's good cool. too because I'll check uh, this out the, the dual stick shooter thing a lot of ga- a lot of games i don't feel like go well on the tablets um, just because like precision nature but due to the pacing of this one I feel like it works really well so definitely check it out
0: yeah is it do you think it will work on the phone or is it the kind of like I? even if they built it for the phone would the user interface I like think, with the dual analog except for your like work?
1: finger covering up a decent sized portion of the screen I think it would work
0: cool yeah I'll have to check it out alright okay. Time so, for
1: our discussion of Unity.
0: Unity. Um, yeah. So first, to talk about Unity, we have to talk about game engines, of which Unity is one. Um, what? I know. So a lot of people, you know, when they first try to make a game, I know I did this. You probably did this too, Patrick. You you, you try to you don't use a game engine. Like when I my first game that I made, I used. Um, um just like i guess like visual basic or something or uh, i think it was like c++ but it was like the uh gdi that's what it was called like it's where like the oh. windows you actually like it was like a desktop application where i was like drawing circles and stuff on like an actual you know desktop window yeah i was
1: right, i was doing like raw opengl calls oh so you're like moving like on c++ up already
0: plus. yeah <laughs> so what i learned is that it just it There was constant flickering because the circles weren't being drawn um, and erased at the same rate as the monitor was refreshing. So, you know, you'd have a circle erased, and before you could redraw it, the monitor would refresh. And so sometimes the circle was there, sometimes it wasn't. Um, and so you just end up with all these weird issues that, you know, you don't really think about. Um you know when you're designing a website or something like that you don't think about weird things like flickering and frames per second and things like that because the browser is kind of doing all that for you and because things aren't really moving around that fast and if they are you're using flash or something like that um but when you deal with a game engine or when you're dealing with a game where there's a lot of objects moving all over the place maybe there's a camera and the camera, you know, is moving. You know, your eyes are effectively moving, which means the whole universe is going in the other direction. Um, that's where you end up with all these weird artifacts and slowness and things like that. And so, game engines are these sort of low-level, you know, drawing, music playing, you know, uh, uh, you know, physics engines that can run very quickly and can give people sort of immediate feedback in, in a world where things are constantly changing
1: yeah i think the difference um, is like when you're writing uh you know a windows application or a mac application you have a ui but it's just a basically a bunch of event handlers that fire when the user does something versus in a game yeah there's stuff going on all the time right like creatures are moving around the enemies are doing something like stuff is always happening
0: right yeah that's right um so typically games are designed to run at 60 fps i know that like when they do backporting so you know if you try and run grand theft auto 4 on xbox 360 it runs at 30 fps but for the most part things run at 60 fps and what that means is that 60 frames per second So you have one sixtieth of a second to do everything. Like, you know, everything Patrick was talking about, like all those people, they have to move, like take a little bit of a step forward. Uh, You know, all the cars, they have to move a little bit forward. They all have to make noise. Um, You know, the camera, if you're moving forward, that means the whole world has to move backwards to give you the feeling of going forward. And all that has to happen and get pushed to the graphics card, the sound card, and all those other peripherals, in 16 milliseconds, which is which is which is no time at all. Um, so this would be really hard for you to do by uh, you know um, by scratch. It would be it would be pretty it'd be pretty much impossible. And well, I know I mean, I,
1: you you can't do it, but what you end up doing is recreating most of what a game engine provides. You yeah, end up writing right. it I yourself, mean, right? Like this is what happened to me. I wrote this game, and I was like oh, I need to handle the death sequence of, like, the character. And it was like, oh, this is something later I've realized, like, oh, game engines just have, like, these kinds of things thought out. Like, there's a level start and a level end. Um, or yep. a game start and a game end. Versus me, like, I had to write, like, oh, I'm in a splash screen. Now I'm in the game. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know if you actually I don't think it's even possible like if you dis- if you wanted to make a game and you want it to be like very interactive 3D things like that and run in real time but not use like OpenGL or DirectX it's pretty much impossible because those are the ways those are the APIs that give you access to the graphics card and OpenAL or DirectSound that's how you get access to the sound card otherwise you just you you're not able to use, you know, all of the hardware on the machine and you can't you know, you can't run fast enough. <coughs> um, so yeah, so you need very special APIs which give you um, a ton of like uh, control, an incredible amount of control so that you can do things very quickly, but they also will allow you to do very bad things. <laughs> um, if you you know, and OpenGL is a lot better now. Actually, there was a time where I gave Patrick uh, remember I gave you a version of Mame. This is we were traveling for work.
1: Yes I do remember And this. Uh,
0: I gave Patrick a version of Mame that had some bad openGL code and his screen flipped. In yep. other words, like yeah, like his yep. screen rotated 90 degrees. And it stayed that way. <laughs> I had <laughs> like to read it, even when yeah. he closed the program, <laughs> his laptop screen. Like he had to turn his head to read everything until he shut down. So I mean, that's the kind of control you get, but it but it comes at a big price. Um, the other so thing that a game engine is really imp- like uh, known for is is, which Patrick alluded to earlier, is the content creation pipeline. So you know, you might have an artist or a game designer. Um, and he's not a programmer, right? I mean, he's just somebody who knows a lot about games and sort of how to, uh, you know, where to reward the player for exploring and how to create, like, nice niches. How to how create, to make them buy
1: um, that in- in-game currency Jason hates.
0: Yeah, how to buy, like, an extra hundred twiddly bits. Um, like, where to create kind of funnels where you can create a lot of action and force people to have to experience that action. So. There's not like large parts of the game that people aren't experiencing, um, so they know a lot about sort of the game design and the storytelling, but they know nothing about coding, and so there needs to be a way for those people to take the scripts that you write for them and and inject them into the game using some kind of nice graphical environment, and there has to be a way for you know the artists to take you know pictures of backdrops take like little 3d models that they're making in some completely separate third party program and uh uh, you know and feed that into your game engine like someone might make a death animation in blender and then go to 3d studio max to make like a dialogue animation and somehow these things need to flow into your game engine so you know commercial or Popular, you know, open source game engines will have a content creation pipeline. Yeah,
1: even how to take a model and like get the polygon drawing that OpenGL needs to do. Right, like this is something that you have to code by yourself when you're writing an OpenGL, or find an individual library for every aspect of it. This is one of the pains for us. Was like, how do we? What is a tool that we can integrate well that allows us to use any 3D modeling program to create a model of a, you know, boat? and put it in the game, and not have to, like, draw every individual polygon.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yep. <clears throat> and then, you, know, you get into texturing, and there's just, there's a whole world full of, of um, like, you know, content-related tools and things like that, that, you know, that a game engine has to support. Um, there's some other kind of more modular parts of a game engine, you know, AI, um, you know, pathfinding, or some kind of state machine, you um, there's physics engines you know like Angry Birds where you, know, you launch the bird and it goes kind of flying through the air and crashes um, and reacts kind of like a, like a ping pong uh, or sorry like a pool table, like a billiards table. Um, so all of these are kind of you know a game engine will typically have you know, modules for all of these other tasks. Um, <coughs> so now we've kind of described game engines. So let's kind of walk through sort of a history of game engines.
1: Um well, maybe so, a little less of a history more of like an overview.
0: yeah, that's true. History's it, boring. It won't be like a chronological yeah, there's a ton of game engines that came out in the past like I mean the idsoft, like id one, id two, id three, the games like you know Duke Nukem and all of those there's engines behind all of those, but um it would it would take us all day to cover the first cover game all engine all I ever
1: engines. use, and this is a pretty high level uh game engine it's called like RPG Maker. And this is, I think, still like they still make versions of it to today. And that's basically if there are a lot of RPG games which are really similar, like Japanese RPGs of a certain mm-hmm. era. Think like Final Fantasy 3, 4, 5, like that that time range. Um, yep. Or what would that be, like Dragon Quest 4, uh, 3?
0: Like 6, I think.
1: Up to like maybe 6. So like before kind of, well, at least the ones I was using before 3D. And they're all very similar. You've got some guy on a world map and he kind of wanders around and occasionally yep. he gets a random fight and then occasionally he like goes into some town and then there's like a more detailed zelda-esque like detailed city map, and he goes around, and typically there aren't random fights there, or there may be, or whatever. Um, and so what it does is is it created a very generic kind of game like this, but then allowed you to make the sprite for your hero and the sprite for your party, and how many people would you allow in your party? And when you go into the town, here's a character. What do they look like? What script do they follow? And you would type out the script, and you know here's what tiles do you want to use for the city? Um, and they had like a lot of I guess template games. Which you could start oh, okay. with and then kind of like modify. And it was almost like a choose your own adventure to build an RPG make, RPG. And then at the end of gotcha. it, like you could start with an example project and just change the name of the characters or, you know, change the Could you the like script invent your
0: own, uh, like, sort of like leveling system? I feel like that's that's a big part of these games, is sort of like how the character progression is. Yeah,
1: so I, I mean, I'm trying to remember now correctly, but at a minimum, like you could specify kind of like how you wanted. Like, this monster gives this many experience points. So, of course, like, the first thing you do because you want to be awesome is, like, this monster has, like, one health and, like, a million experience points, right? That doesn't (laughs) make for, like, a fun game. But that's what you do because it's fun. And so stuff like that. But then, you know, ultimately at the time, like, I wasn't really into programming. uh, So this is, like, pretty early on. And so I didn't get into the whole, like, scripting part of it as much, but that's a big aspect as well. Like, how do you do leveling? Like, well, here's your generic leveling system, but if you want to write your own, you can too. Um,
0: Yeah, right. I I played this... I had this one called Unlimited Adventures, which is very similar to RPG Maker, but it was from the Forgotten Realms people. So it was all, like, the Dungeons & Dragons rule base. And the first thing I did, I made this... um, thing where like you you walk to the town and when you entered the town there was a huge battle between these like 400 city guards versus like 120 dragons and uh and the battle took like three hours (laughs) and i was like and i was like this is totally awesome and i gave it to a friend of mine and he's like yeah i let that run overnight and i came back and it was you know like my computer had crashed (laughs) so it was like I realized it was like actually really hard to make a good game <laughs> like one that's, that's true like um, as a game developer you get caught up in like the mechanics and things like that and then you end up like kind of self-absorbed then you give it to somebody who you know isn't like hasn't been like walking through the development process and they're like yeah this is crap <laughs>
1: yeah yeah um, and so similar to the description of RPG Maker I guess in a way, is I remember playing all the LucasArts point-and-click adventures. Um, yep. And these all run on a similar, it's called Scum. Oh, the name just escaped me. It's like scripting for... script uh, it scripted, up. Script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. I, I looked it up. I cheated. Um uh, okay. And so... These were, uh, if you remember, like the Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. I remember playing this game, and it was so oh, hard. Hey, I had to like there? barely just got on the internet. And I would, like go on the internet and look up like how do you get past this level? Uh, Grim Fandango, um, whatever are was, like the Monkey Island uh, games. These were all games that were written in this uh, Scum language, and you would be able to provide like here's the verbs I want to use, here's the nouns I want to use. Uh, and here's a picture of the town that I want this adventure to take place, and where the special areas are. Yeah, so I've used
0: ScumVM a little bit. They had a game that was free, or I guess like GPL or something, on ScumVM called like, was it like a Flight of the Amazon Queen or something like that? And there was another one called Beneath the Steel Sky. Have you played these ones?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty cool. That was pretty amazing.
1: Um, so you can write your own uh, using the same same engine. Is it hard to make?
0: Like, I mean, is it some weird format or is it, do they have a scum VM maker?
1: I've not actually tried that one, so I don't know.
0: Yeah, should, I should, I'll check it out.
1: I should, I should try one, I guess. We should
0: make a crazy adventure game where you have to survive Silicon Valley.
1: I I think you should have to survive having uh, two kids running around the house causing havoc. (laughs) That's that's, that's playing on impossible. (laughs) Find the TV remote that one of your children is deliberately hiding because they think it's funny.
0: (laughs) Use belt on. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, oh, no. Oh,
1: man, I'm just kidding. Uh, Low-level game engines. Uh, yeah, seriously, so these seriously don't, don't ever do don't that. Okay,
0: low-level game engine. Um, so, so we talked about high-level, you know, RPG maker, Scum VM, things like that, and we'll talk about Unity. But um, a lot of these, like, they don't give you kind of raw access, right? So, um, you know,
1: in say, you can't, they're not generic. You can't use them to make any kind of game you want, right? The ones we've talked about so far. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, like if you um if you want say like You
1: can't make a flight simulator in RPG maker. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, it doesn't make sense. So I mean at the low level, like what is every game doing? Um nowadays, right? It's doing one of two things. Either drawing triangles in three D that are getting kind of crushed into two D by the GPU, getting rasterized. Um or they're drawing um sprites in 2D, so which are just kind of, you know, pictures that they're drawing in 2D or some combination of the two, right? Same thing with audio. What are you doing? You're taking a variety of audio signals that are positioned in either 2D or 3D, um, and then you are muxing them together uh, uh, or mixing them together into, you know, one signal and then sending that to, like, an audio processor, right? So... What these low-level engines do is they, they try to abstract as much as possible while still giving you the freedom to do what we just described, like to make any game you could ever want. Um, so the most common one is SDL. So SDL is, um, you know, has things like, you know, add audio track or, you know, draw 2D box, draw sprite, move sprite, things like that and then under the hood they've written what that means you know in a hundred different platforms so if you draw a box on Windows or if you draw a box on Linux or on the iPhone or on the you know Android phone or whatever there's a there's a line of code that handles that so SDL just think of it as like the same draw box function implemented like 30 different ways so that when you call it, you don't have to think about it. Um, SMFL is similar. It's a little bit more modern, but it's the same idea. Um, There's also (coughs) this combination of three libraries, OGRE, OIS, and OpenAL. OGRE does graphics, OIS does input, and OpenAL does sound. And when you put the three of them together, you have kind of the same thing. Um, There's Hacks, which is very similar. Um, And then something that's becoming much more popular now is the whole HTML5 Canvas thing, which is pretty cool. So, you know, in Canvas, you can say like raw things like draw a circle, move a circle, things like that. and, um, And then it will sort of do the right thing. So on the iPhone, the HTML5 Canvas will call whatever the, you know, low level draw circle function is for the iPhone. So, um, yeah, the low-level ones are cool. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear, like, if you use a low-level, as the name suggests, you're going to be writing a lot more code. I mean, talking about, like, the uh, content creation stuff we mentioned earlier, you're going to be doing all of that from scratch, and it's going to take, you know, months and months. But, you but know... That's the fun part. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But if you want to make something like, say, Minecraft, which is just very, very different, like, uh, you know, Minecraft... It's it's The world is made up of, like, a billion of those little cubes, and you can't just draw a billion cubes in 16 milliseconds. It just doesn't work. So you have to be really clever about which cubes I draw and stuff like that. And so whenever you need that much kind of precise control, then you have to use a low-level engine. Um, and that's why you don't see a lot of, like, really fancy artwork and things like that in Minecraft because they... Um, you can't just take some model that you made in like blender with the animations and everything and just put it in minecraft and it magically worked Um,
1: yeah if you're going to do everything you need a disproportionately large team the more you're going to do right if you're going to do everything from scratch right um, you need more and more people and then more people to handle the the interactions between them
0: yeah exactly
1: so you end up with like hundred person game teams
0: Yeah, can you imagine like a hundred people all working to make one... Is
1: that reasonable? I mean, I feel like I saw something about some of the games now getting to that size.
0: Yeah, I I totally believe it. But uh, that's pretty wild. I mean, I I think there's... The other day I was uh, talking to a friend of mine who worked at EA and he said there was... There's like a handful of people who work on the Madden football and all they do is the grass... Like, they try and make the grass look as realistic as possible. But there's, like, an army of people just for the grass. So it happens.
1: Yeah, I, it's yeah. like you said, it's, <laughs> it's not surprising.
0: Yeah. Um, so, okay, Unity. So Unity is, you know, a high-level game engine. So it's, you know, doing a lot of work for you. Um, the basic premise behind Unity is that you have... Um, this thing called prefabs. (coughs) And the idea is this. Let's say you're you're making some Grand Theft Auto level, right? So you have a bunch of streets, and at the end of every street you have a traffic light. Well, you don't want to have to create, you know, 10 billion traffic lights. And then, oh, you know, I don't really like the way the traffic light looks, so I have to go and change all of them, and it would take forever. So this idea called a prefab, where you sort of design one traffic light that you know kind of looks really well and captures as much of the essence of all the traffic lights as you can capture. Um, And then you just instantiate that prefab all over the place. And so then if later on, if your boss comes to you and says, hey, I really want the traffic lights to be orange instead of yellow, you could change the prefab and then all of the objects in your world magically get corrected. Um, So that's kind of the premise behind Unity. Um, So you have prefabs, you have game objects, which are instances of prefabs, and then you can assign scripts to either. So you can say, you know, all traffic lights will use this script. Um, And so in a way, it's very kind of functional uh, because you don't really... There's no guarantees on the order of the scripts and things like that, especially if you're creating objects dynamically. And so... You know, there's some like update function that captures how traffic lights interact with things around them, time and, and move uh, over time,
1: yeah, change over time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and so that function just kind of runs, and the traffic lights all kind of work independently.
1: So when you move to one of these uh, game engines, but specifically Unity, one of the things that Jason was talking about before is that you gain cross-platformness to to say that way. Uh, and so that is that if you are running on desktop and you decide you want to move to iOS because you heard that was the hotness, or to <laughs> Android, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you can. You can take your game that's mostly developed and with very little work, just run it on the others because you're working at a higher level and so those abstractions handle moving to the other platforms.
0: That's right, that's right. And even you can even write in three different languages um, and it all just kind of gets compiled down to the same thing. So Unity has Unity Script, which is kind of like JavaScript, but uh, you know it uh, doesn't have all the same like functions, uh, all the same features of JavaScript, and the syntax is a little different. There's Unity C#, which is you know exactly C# in terms of syntax, but you know not all the libraries from C# are there. It's kind of like a subset of C#. And then there's Boo. Which is this language is inspired by Python as a syntax that's similar to Python, but uh, um but again, it's only for unity um and so it's pretty cool you can you know you can have a team of people and they don't necessarily all have to be writing in the same language, although it'd probably be better <laughs> if everyone is <laughs> <was> consistent, <laughs> but you can have a you know a unity script script for your traffic light that you know calls a Unity C Sharp script to say, is there anyone around me? Like, is there anyone within 100 meters? And if there is, then the traffic light yells at them or something. Um, so I thought, you know, it was uh, it was pretty cool how, like, like, you um. can kind of design all of these scripts independently and then see sort of, I think this is called emergent behavior, where it's sort of like the sum is greater than you know or the the whole is greater than some of the parts and so it's like you design this traffic light and it kind of tries to react to anything that comes near it and then you know you design cars you design people and and eventually you end up with this this thing that feels very lifelike and you end up with these kind of very complex behaviors that you could have never really scripted um another thing about unity it's pretty cool it um has all of those things we talked about. It has you know the content creation. You can easily take models from Blender, Maya, 3D Studio, and import them into Unity. Um, and also, a lot of people have written plugins for Unity. Some of them cost money. Um, some of them are free. But uh, you know, someone even wrote like a Minecraft um, kind of plugin. Somebody else wrote a plugin for doing like tune shading. So if you want your game to look like you know it's a cartoon. Um, and so, you know, the plugins are really what's going to get you closer to one of these low level game engines. Like when you need to do something that Unity can't handle, then you can rely on one of these plugins. So you're not, you're not just totally lost.
1: All of those plugins and the framework to handle plugins and the cross compatibility do give you a productivity boost. So instead of spending time creating them all from your on your own and essentially creating your own version of those things, you are able to offload that to people who have already done it. And that saves you time. It gets you down to the cool part about figuring out your awesome AI or your witty story or your amazing animations.
0: Mm-hmm. But yeah, but that comes at a price. <laughs> so, you know, all those people... A cost
1: who, in US dollars.
0: That's right. All those people who made all of those low-level things want to get paid. And so um, you can use the base Unity for free. But... Um, it's pretty limiting I mean you can't really use plugins so you know even if someone else made a plugin that fixes your problem or that you know add some functionality to unity that you need you can't use it because you only have the basic um, to use plugins or to make your own plugins you have to get unity pro which uh it's fifteen hundred dollars base and then if you want to do Android it's another fifteen hundred if you want to do iOS it's another fifteen hundred so if to to publish a game on Android, iOS, and desktop with Unity Pro, you have to spend forty five hundred dollars, which is which is pretty steep. <laughs> I mean,
1: good good job, math, can, math.
0: Yeah, hopefully you can make that money back in sales, but that's rather tough. I mean,
1: so is it possible with? So you, you looked more at this than me, but the if you have just the Unity base, could you make a game? Maybe you couldn't release it on iOS because of this fee, but is it possible to make a game on the desktop that would? Be actually like people would pay to play.
0: Um, yeah, you definitely could do it. Um, I think you might even be able to make a Unity. So the Unity Pro for iOS costs money, but you can use the Unity Basic on any of the platforms for free. So you can oh, even okay. make an Android game and charge for it. Um, the only thing is, uh, other than you know not getting the plugins and a bunch of other features like skeletal animation some things like that. Uh, Or like this inverse kinematics. Um, But other than that, you uh, have a Unity splash screen. So, you know, when someone launches your app, the first thing they'll see is like powered by Unity for a few seconds. Which, you know, that's not too bad.
1: And Um, if my app makes it into big leagues and sells a million copies, do I owe some fee per copy? I
0: don't think it's... Is it per copy? I know that... uh, if you sell more than, I think it's like a hundred grand, or maybe it's even ten grand, then you have to buy pro. So, part of their license is you can't make oh, more okay. than a certain amount. Um, but I don't think there's any kind of rev share model or anything like that. So, I think that uh, once you pay for the pro, and I'm just double checking now, yeah, once you pay for the pro, like you own it. If you make a billion dollars, it's fine.
1: That's nice. Yeah. So you could, but you could do it. You could try it out, and if you make a game you think is awesome, you could ship it. And then when you get to a hundred thousand, and you deal with it, guess that's a good problem to have.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can get away with Unity Basic, then um, yeah, you can. You can always push the, put the game out and then retroactively pay them. I'm sure they wouldn't mind. <laughs> but uh. one thing about Unity is that for what you get, it's actually remarkably cheap. Like the Unreal Engine, I think, is like 100000 or something ridiculous, Unreal Engine pricing. So if you want Unreal Engine 4, it is, it doesn't even say.
1: So I know that uh, the GitHub student package, did we talk about that last time? If you're a student and you register with the .edu address, you can go to like GitHub and they have like all these free services. Oh and yeah, that's right. Trial things. Um, I, I thought we talked about it, but if we didn't, you should check it I out. I think we talked think about there, it like
0: three or four episodes ago. Yeah.
1: There, I think they offer. Uh, I know they offer, I think, an Unreal Engine uh, license or something you can use for small time stuff uh, and getting a taste for it as part of that package.
0: Oh okay, nice. So ironically uh unreal four they just changed their pricing model recently and now it's twenty dollars per month plus five percent of your revenue ah okay so now it's that's kind of like an interesting dynamic i mean because i mean five percent is really nothing right like even even if you made a hundred thousand dollars in revenue then uh that's 5, just five 000. grand, which is the price of Unity for all of the, uh, oh yeah, OSs. So,
1: yeah, so I'm I'm looking at it now on get, If you're a, if you are a student, which presumably probably means you have a .edu email address, that's typically how they do that. Um, it, the GitHub Student Pack includes uh, a subscription to Unreal Engine Four. Gotcha. So you don't have to pay the twenty dollars a month. I don't know what happens if you make like a billion dollars. I, I don't know.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Actually, the Unreal Engine, you get the entire source code for the engine, which is something you don't get with Unity, even with the Pro version, um, which is pretty cool. I mean, if you ever wanted to know how like, a game engine works, you could just get this subscription for a month and then cancel it, and for 20 bucks. I mean, even if you're not a student, then... For 20 bucks you get the source code for ue4 and you can check out how it works it's pretty amazing cool
1: all right well so, i think that's a wrap thanks to you all for listening
0: yeah so you know short story is unity is pretty awesome um it takes some getting used to it's definitely not it's definitely intended for you know game designers um and i learned very quickly that uh, that uh I'm not a game designer. <laughs>
1: so you had I, a bunch of stick figures running around the screen. It yes. did, yeah, it
0: didn't feel natural to me. I, I kind of wanted like... I'm like, oh, well, how am I going to design this like, crazy particle engine? And then I realized like, this is really meant for like, building a gigantic level and having a bunch of like, experiences. And I was thinking about more in terms of like, like... I was thinking about like a board game engine that would like play any board game. And like kind of like encode the rules in a script. And it's just like I was trying to like put a square peg in a round hole. <laughs> but uh. but uh, for people who are like designing a real game and have kind of a background in game design, I think this is an amazing tool.
1: Very nice.
0: So cool. All right. Until next time. Yeah. Have a good one, guys. Catch you later. The intro music is Axo by Binary Pilot.